Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Find Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. The story of George Esquivel feels like it could be a movie script. From an uneasy childhood kicking his dad out of the house to starting his own shoe business, the successes and the pitfalls, most pitfalls were mere bumps in the road due to things outside of George's control, such as investors backing out and the effects of COVID, for example, It's been a roller coaster, and it's all worthy of the big screen, in my opinion. I first came across George's work in and around 2009-2010 when I was writing my lifestyle blog, Screaming Mouth. I'd seen him in some magazines as well as some stores around Los Angeles where I was living at the time. Though I wanted to interview him back then, the timing never worked out. Funny enough, while I was in Chicago at Windup, the brand Esquivel came up in conversation with George from Everest Straps. As fate and sheer coincidence would have it, two days later I received an email from Esquivel's marketing department about perhaps being a candidate for a podcast interview. Little did they know my awareness of the brand from 10 years before. It's so crazy how the world shrinks sometimes. I can't believe it's been a decade since I first learned about Esquivel, which is also a testament to George's staying power. I just love his aesthetic and unique style of his product assortment, which I feel he does a great job describing even without a visual component of this show. So if you're into shoes and or want to learn more about how they're made, etc., this show's for you. So rather than summarize this conversation too much, I figured it's best to just jump in because George has had one hell of a ride. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. George, thanks so much for taking the time and having me here at your studio. It's uh, a really special place. It's in downtown LA. Yep. Um, but it's a warehouse with kind of a loft kind of space to it, which is where we are. Yep. 
what is this room that is this so this is my design room okay i was gonna say because there's like some storyboarding going on this is where like the project we did for the beverly hills hotel uh i'm working on another project for an airline company where it's an amenity kit cool uh bowling shoes for the roosevelt hotel amazing room uh new sneakers for the beverly hills hotel and these are some other projects for me i also part of what we do here at Escavel house is develop product for other brands so if you notice those are some interesting looking boots it's uh the whole concept is no the barefoot shoe right the gentleman that i'm working with his uh chris duffin he holds a world record you should look him up for thousand pound deadlift and thousand pound squat okay yeah so the concept is everything's flat and he came to me along with his partners and we just started developing these shoes and it's a whole lifestyle so a workout shoe a casual loafer an outdoor boot that you see there um and they look very simple but there's a lot of interesting things that we have to take into account when we develop these things right these guys are massive guys yeah he's massive and these guys are just huge and developing the tent the density of the rubber so it doesn't break down too soon and you know, these guys are working out with 500 pounds 600 pounds and it's, it's kind of crazy so is the boot physically that i'm looking at here is that the physical representation it's, of that image it is it's not the final that's going to go into production okay um because the image looks like if you were to take an ugg boot but make it look like a wolverine thousand mile boot like that's it looks it's like it's a this, whole well everything started with let's just say this is where it started right that's the shoe yeah from the shoe that we went to a loafer with a collapsible heel. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there we're developing other products. So then it goes into this and everything has to do with a foot splay. Right. And, but then what happens is as the leather gets thicker, it doesn't flex the same. Right. Sure. So now you got to start developing all of these other products or components that work with it. How is it going to continue to flex? Yeah. So these guys here ha really don't have an alternative. If you're an outdoor guy, if you're a construction worker, what right. do you wear to give you that flexibility in the foot splay? Right, sure. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so for- So that's part of what we do in this room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Conceptualize, create- You also see this woman, there's that high heel there that I'm doing for somebody. She wanted custom heels. She's got a smaller foot and she's in between sizes and she can afford anything she wants, Yeah. and I'm gonna make her a custom heel. That's kind of what we do here as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, a lot of different projects. Uh, our brand is still small yeah. compared to like big brands, but these are kind of the projects that we take on with my business partners, and I think also utilizing all the relationships that I've built over the years. Sure. Of sourcing and manufacturing. Um, so you and I sort of have a, 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 not a unique history because we we don't have a history. Yeah. Um, well, our I, paths have crossed. Uh, yes. I, so I used to write a fashion and lifestyle blog, which all my listeners should probably know this well by now. Um, I had, I don't know, probably maybe two posts on Esquivel shoes back in the day. Now I'm, we're going back 10, 12 years. Um, so we've exchanged emails. Yeah. But we've never met in person until uh, 30 minutes ago, Yeah, <laughs> which uh, which is great. And you have 
certainly moved your business into a different realm because back when I was covering you, you were on West Third Street. In a little showroom. In a little showroom. And it was kind of not in an is, would well, you consider it, it, it not well, an alleyway? It was behind Douglas Fir. It was behind Fir, Douglas Fir. Which was and still is a very cool men's store. Love it, yeah. Um, so. The owner's name is. John. John. And, John yeah. Noble. And I've asked him to be on the show yeah. and he doesn't want to oh, come Oh, really? On. He doesn't yeah. want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, he's a very interesting guy. Super cool. He's a humbled guy. He's a, yeah. And just a really, really good guy. So behind Douglas Fir, there was an apartment. It was a one-bedroom apartment that was two stories, full kitchen, full everything. And as my relationship grew with John, I said, where do you guys go when you guys walk out to the back? He said, oh, it's our storage. And I walked back there, and they were using an apartment, this insane apartment with this beautiful courtyard. Did you ever see the courtyard back there? Uh, It looked like a little French courtyard. Only through the doorway. And I was like, I need this place to be mine. Right. And I said, John, what if I rent this? And he goes, well, I sub it from the landlord. I said, I want it. And he goes, well, can I have, can I keep part of it as storage? I'm like, you can do whatever you want. And it was really cool. We were there for about 10 years. And that's kind of where I also, we were meeting the celebrities and the stylists and the musicians would come to town. And it was also part of when I went through the, the, Vogue, the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, it was a good little hub, right? Had its time. Landlord wanted the building back, and we were without an LA presence for about four years. Oh, really? But at that time, I had been developing in my mind what I want the next phase to be. And the next phase to be was what you see here downstairs, where you have, we call it Esquivel House, right? You can come here, you saw a dining room table, you can have a glass of champagne or beer or Coke or whatever, and watch the guys work, the guys and girls, which is super cool to me. Yeah. It's a celebration of craft. Sure. The chandeliers were made for us, the dining room table, the couch we bought and hand colored. Uh, Everything has a story downstairs. The products that we make, even down to the collaborations that we have with other people, the candle, it's a house scent. And a good friend of mine, uh, now we've become good friends, he was the one who developed the scent for Hotel Cost and Colette. Cool. So he developed Esquivel House scent, which is really, really cool. It's it's still not quite what we want it to be. We had hoped that it was more, uh, the entrance looks a little sparse. We want it to be more retail, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. We started building early 2019, and halfway through it, the investor pulled out, had to find another investor. We get that investor at the end of 2019, and then the pandemic hits. And now we can't do construction. I mean, it was just a year and a half of just craziness. We move in June 2020, the middle of the pandemic. And we have no option. Like, this is it. We're moving in. It's not like we're not going to move in. And it was like everything else. It's been up and down. We've had amazing months. We've had months where like, what the heck are we doing? Right. We've had weeks where like, I can't believe this happened. And then you have weeks like you don't see anything because it's just been... Whatever's happening in the news is reflected in our business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to go out because it's, you know, there's a high rate of infection right now or whatever's happening. Before we moved in, the street was packed. Across the street from us is Warner Music. Nobody fully moved in there. Wow. Someone told me that the numbers about five, 600 people that are supposed to be moving in there, no one ever moved in. Wow. It's empty. My thinking when we first moved in, I was like, this is going to be cool. You're going to have all those people, my clients who actually 
are with Warner Music to come and meet their publicist there or whatever happens can just walk across the street and we do the shoes. So we'll, we'll obviously jump around here yeah. a lot. Who is, your, who is your client? I mean, everybody says the same thing. It's someone creative. It's someone they're independent. And, and to be honest with you, it really is our client. Yeah. We are clients for the most part. I think on the women's sector, it's creatives, architects, designers, doctors, and it kind of marries that on the men's side. It's guys that have built their own businesses, guys that don't really care what anybody else is wearing. Yes, they do love a good watch and they love a good car, but when it comes to their clothing, they're, they're a little bit more expressive, I think, in what they buy, right? Sure. They don't want what anybody else has. The guys that come here don't want anybody to have their boot or their belt or their bag, whatever that is, right, that we make for them. Uh, like I showed you one of the boots downstairs, that navy blue suede that's a replica of another boot, of his favorite boot. He's going to buy four pairs probably. And, yeah. But that's what these gentlemen want. Um, I would say our age group starts probably late 20s, early 30s, closer to mid-30s. Sure. And it goes up to probably 55, 60. The way things are now is the guys are staying in better shape for a lot longer. They love clothes and... Yeah. love to travel. I mean, this is all pre-pandemic, right? But that's kind of our guy. Guys love cars. They love motorcycles. Um, we work with some amazing people. Uh, Jonathan Ward of Icon Trucks is a client of ours. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, Road Scholars. Um, yeah. Those guys. Uh, In Durham. Yeah. I'm from North Carolina. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, I know Cam. Yeah, Cam's a client of ours and a friend. That's yeah. crazy. So those are our type of people, right? So Jonathan Ward. Then you also have... I mean, um, I don't know Cam, yeah. but I've met him. He's a great guy. And he signed my book and... Super <laughs> good guy. Deal. So then you have that. And then you have also the McKenna's that own the McKenna car dealerships. Yeah. From the father, wife, kids, future son-in-law, they were in my shoes, right? Um, this morning we had... Uh, Patrick Durkin, who's an ex-UFC fighter, he's a client of ours. It just kind of, I think when you want something a little different and special, right? Right. So what makes you different and special in your eyes? Like, And was that the intention in the onset or, or did it become that? Uh, I don't think it was ever about being different. You know, it, I grew up, I have a crazy upbringing, uh, grew up poor, homeless at times. My dad was a drug addict, drug dealer. At 19, I kicked them out of the house. But one of the things that I never had was new shoes. I always had fake Nikes or fake Reeboks. And when we were first making shoes, I wanted everything to be perfect because in my mind, a perfect shoe was a perfect white sneaker, right? Right. Little did I know until one of my shoemakers pulled me aside and I had never even thought of this. He's like, you do know that that's not the best leather. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, that's painted. And I'm like, what the heck? And we're making them out of a garage and, and it started me kind of going down this path of this perfectly imperfect product that we make, right? Sure. We don't want to cover the, the, the veins and the leather, but it is a way you make it. I mean, you've seen the process. It's still a beautiful process, right? We're not about mass market. We are about individuality. Um, even the watch straps, something a little different, right? There's a reason why I think people want to write about what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to sell 100,000 pairs out of my space here. Right. It's not the goal. Right. The goal is to do beautiful things. Uh, 
I think if I was younger and I was at this stage, I'd probably want to sell hundred thousand pairs. Right. But now no understanding how difficult it is to make that many shoes in my own space. This is a workshop. It's a beautiful atelier. People say it's your factory. I'm like, believe me, it's not a factory because a factory as you and I talked about the wallet, we would be die cutting everything. You'd be prefabricating. This is there's probably conveyor belts involved. <laughs> well, the, so a lot of people don't understand when you're going well, production of shoes, doesn't matter what shoe you are. You can't make a shoe without a last, which is the mold, right? Right. If you're making a hundred thousand pair run, you don't have a hundred thousand pairs of shoe last. You may have 5,000 pairs, maybe 10,000 pairs. You need to use that last multiple times. So you have to hurry up, get it out of the shoe and last or mount another pair. So in factories, they'll run through heaters and coolers to hurry up and get it out. It's only going to stay on the last maybe two days. It might sit longer if they're waiting for something. Typically factories at the most five days are sit anywhere from one to two weeks on the last naturally dry. Interesting. It's a natural dry process because we don't run them through heaters and coolers. Now, if somebody needs a pair of shoes in five days and it's for whether it's a TV show or a special project or a premiere, we'll rush it. But they understand that this is not a shoe right. that I'm going to stand behind and say, by the way, you can bring this back to me and it's still going to be in good condition as long as you're taking care of it years down the road. Because it didn't dry properly, in my opinion, right? There's still, we know what works for us, right? And, it's like and, beef. Like you're well, like dry aging beef. Well, a little bit, but it's dry. It's drying the shoes during the winter when it's colder. It takes longer to dry, um, and it just just so happens we're in Southern California and it's warm and if it's it's the proper temperature. I don't know specifically or scientifically why. I just know that it works. So, um, did you grow up in L.A.? Uh, I grew up in L.A. and Orange County. Okay. So um, I started school in L.A. and then I finished and I graduated high school in Orange County. And we went back and forth. I went to 12 or 13 schools. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. What? Okay. Did you attend college or no? I did. I tried a couple times. So <laughs> at 19, I kicked my dad out of the house and became head of the household. So I'm the oldest of five. Wow. When I kicked my dad out, I had two siblings in high school, another one in sixth grade, and the youngest was in kindergarten. So it's just now You, you about became a dad real quick. Kind of like really, really fast. Yeah. And... Um, the way I got into this is I never, my escape with, you met my wife who was my, we, we met in high school. My escape was going to concerts, the punk, the punk shows of the nineties. What bands? Um, social distortion, rancid. Does the, Mike Ness wear your stuff? No, you know, cause I he's actually, an Alan Edmonds guy. Uh, yeah. And he actually wears like these vintage cop shoes. I never <laughs> made shoes for Mike Ness. Okay. I made shoes for Dennis Donnell, who was his guitar player and John Maurer, who was the bass player. Okay. And I actually became friends with those guys back then. And That's cool. It's, but never Mike Ness. It's one of those things where it's, it's not a, like I have to have the guy, right? For right, me, right, it's, right. And then it, You it want kinda, the person interested. I want the person who likes what I'm doing because yeah. they're going to promote it. They're going to they're gonna promote what I'm doing. And so that was kind of like the first band. I'm like, wow, I was paying 40, 50 bucks to go see these guys. And now they're wearing my shoes. Now they're rocking your stuff. And, and then it took off from there because being at the right place at the right time, um, then the guitar tech for No Doubt was became a friend. Cool. He puts it on No Doubt right before they got big. And then Lit, the band Lit, <laughs> yeah. those guys, and then the Reverend Horton Heat. And it just kind of all took off at the same time. Like I would say 96, 
96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001 is just when it took off. Wow. And we were still making shoes out of a garage. And that was in Orange County? No, that was in the City of Commerce. Okay. I found someone to make my shoes out of his garage. He was a retired shoemaker. In two, two and a half years, I say we probably made 2,500 pairs of shoes out of a garage. So what, what was that aesthetic? What, what did it, it look like? It was very vintage. Uh, it was just a vintage aesthetic. I knew nothing about design. It was like a wingtip, a cap toe, and a derby. Okay, and cool. a loafer. And that was, it's the whole rockabilly punk thing that was happening. Yeah. So Creepers, Doc Martens, and a kind of I was there. So, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And, and that's where it all, I guess, the love of not having shoes and then I have shoes turned into like an addiction. Sure. Uh, then I started, how do I get better at this? And, and taking, so he, the gentleman who was making my shoes quit on me because he was only part time. I go find somebody else and everybody kept kicking me out of their space. And I find out that I'm just kind of neurotic and a pain in the ass. Like, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. I'm the same way. And, man. and to the people to the point where like, we can't do what you're asking you need to leave. I'm like, no, 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 come on, let's do it again. And I'd show up with a wad of cash. Well, I got 50 pairs. Here's the money for 50 pairs. You want the money? And of course they're gonna take the money. Right. So we would keep working together until finally my last mentor said, you're driving everybody crazy. We can't make you what you want. Here's a couple of machines, have fun. Here's what's crazy. I had just gotten my first luxury account, which was Fred Siegel Feet on Melrose. No kidding. I had just gotten it. I'm like, what the heck am I gonna do? Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to make shoes in that way. Like I understood the process and I helped. I was not, I never wanted to learn to make shoes to become a great shoemaker. My thing is I want to know how things are under, how they're made. So you can't tell me no, because it took about a year and a half from the first pair I had made in Mexico until I found someone because everybody's, Oh, I can't do what you're asking. I'm like, how it's just a shoe. It's not that hard. And I had been dabbling in clothing. Uh, so I, I understood it's not that hard. And my whole goal of learning how to make shoes and helping and assisting was I understand. Right. I understand the mechanics of the foot. I understand how it's supposed to fit. I understand all of those things. Doesn't mean I'm the best shoemaker. I don't need to be. I don't want to be the best shoemaker. Right. I got an amazing team downstairs, right? And what is the best anyways? You know, I have clients who buy a welted, beautiful, uh, British made shoe and they're like, I can't wear them. They're too stiff. Well, that's just it. Right. Like, I mean, being really specific to you, like I'm this way with my apparel, you know, like this isn't good enough. This, this fabric isn't soft enough. This fabric's too thin. It's too thick. It, you know, whatever. Like I know what I'm trying to accomplish, even though I'm not physically manning the sewing machine, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sit there. Like there's no way. What, what takes my guys one day to do would take me two weeks. Right, right. I can do it. Right. And I can sit there. The only thing I can't do is stitch. I was always scared to stitch because once you puncture the leather, the needle marks are there. I was always scared to ruin the leather. But all the other parts, like, yeah, I can make a shoelace. It's going to take a long time. The stitching's not so straight because I don't practice that every day. My job is to be designing the product, being the face of the brand, being the creative director, and hanging out with a the clients who come by that's kind of my thing sure you know for me to sit and cut i can't cut as fast as these guys right 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 i can't do it's just inefficient it's inefficiency and and people that's that's not my deal i don't want to sit and cut all day are you still riding the punk train what are we listening to these i mean days? you know uh, i think it's more singer songwriter 
Yeah, I'm the punk I do when I'm working out or something. Sure. I mean, you can never go wrong with social distortion, <laughs> yeah. uh, rancid, you know. Um, it was just kind of crazy. I, you start looking back at all those, and I'm like, wow, I made shoes for those guys. The, even the Pixies, I've made shoes for the guys when they did a reunion tour. I don't remember what year that was. I don't know, but Surfer uh, Rosa was such yeah. a great album. Yeah. I've, I've made shoes for so many people that all that music inspires me. Everything, whether it's modern or from the past, I don't just say I'm only into one thing. Punk thing is a little too aggressive for me these days. It kind of gets you going. I, f I mean, if I'm riding, if I'm doing a mountain bike ride or something, then yeah, you want to listen to that, but not all the time. Sure. Well, so how did you, I mean, did your creative style or at least your aesthetic more importantly, was that kind of the same then as it is now or did it morph at all? No, I think when I first started, it was very punk rockabilly, right? And okay. that's kind of what was happening at the time. That's who I was. And I, I have to say, I, it's more rock and roll now and okay. rock and roll in the sense of an attitude you right. know like there was that big con well the controversy when um was it gene simmons didn't want uh nwa to get inducted into the hall of fame the rock and roll hall of fame right mm. that's rock and roll though right that's still rock and roll against like, the grain against the grain like okay if you're gonna be specific to a genre of music like there's jazz musicians that have been rock and roll and totally. there's, it doesn't matter. So yes, it was very punk. It was very rockabilly. But for me, I think when I made the change into more of just rock and roll, there was a band that I used to work with. I became very good friends with. It was James Hall. Okay. And James Hall is what I consider and what many consider the guy who started, studied the whole, started the Southern rock movement, right? Okay. Precursor to Leonard Skinner. Uh, no, no, not, not that old. Okay. So I would say Black Crows. Okay. Uh, Marilyn Manson, who came from Atlanta, you know, uh, the guitar player from Nine Inch Nails, Robin Fink was from that area. So James Hall was that guy. He got signed at a really early age. Uh, I don't remember who signed him. He was 19. But they didn't know where to put him because what was happening at the time was that rap rock, right? Oh, the limp gets of the <laughs> yeah. world. Yeah. So he just kind of became this underground cult guy. Like I'd go to concerts and you see all of the massive musicians at a show at the Viper Room. And I'm designing his clothes. I'm designing his shoes. My tailor's making his clothes. And that's when I started getting a little bit more of rock and roll feel. Like he would, he was really small guy, great shape. But he'd wear high-waisted women's pants with a zipper in the back. Just whatever, right? But right. then he would have this amazing blazer that we would make for him. And then I would make him like a whatever color loafers that he wanted to wear. But he'd come out with this crazy guitar. And then Robin Fink, who was playing with Nine Inch Nails and Guns N' Roses, would be his guitar player when he came into town. No way. This is just insane. It's it was, It's rock and roll, right? It's also the Viper Room. So. Exactly, but that was rock and roll. And, and I think that's when my style started evolving a little bit more. And then I started traveling. Before, I would say when I was 30, I started traveling to Asia because I was consulting for brands that wanted to manufacture in China. How did they find you? Just kind of word of mouth. I worked with surf brands. I worked with sandal brands, designing for them. I think everything's just word of mouth at that point. Like, where'd you get those? Oh, call my buddy George. Right, right. So I'm going to China. Then I start going to Europe right around 2009, 2010. 
for the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. I'm one of the finalists there. Out of 10, I'm one of 10. I don't win, but my life changes. Anna Wintour and Vogue and the CFDA just completely changed my life. Wow. Uh, my first gig was consulting for Fertelli Rossetti. We did a project where I actually went to Jenna Lyons, who was the creative director of J. Crew. J. Crew, yeah. And we did a collaboration, a three-way collaboration. I went to Bergdorf, where they were selling my shoes. I got Fratelli Rossetti into Bergdorf's. And what, ha what I had done is, they have this, uh, the, the bro there's three brothers that own the brand right now. Their father is, um, the story is that he is the one who invented the tassel loafer for men. No way. In the 60s. Wow. The Breda loafer, which is this region in Milan, uh, the, Bre the Breda region, right? Where everything was always cool and hip. And his aesthetic was very much like my aesthetic. It was hand-colored, but not perfect, right? My influence was Berluti. I was like, oh my gosh, those are so beautiful. Those are all like hand-burnished. and Yeah, but and that's kind of what we do, but a different feel, right? Yes. Mine has a very punk Southern California aesthetic. Yeah. Also a very casual Southern California aesthetic. I think that also is commanded by your shape as well. It could be, yeah. Because like Berluti is going to be a lot more of an Italian shape. Yeah. They well they it's a it's a European shape right yeah yeah it's a it's a European shape because Berluti's French but it's they they all have like the British the French the Italians have different aesthetics in terms of the toe I've had very elongated toes they look cool that's not me right I'm not super short and stubby I'm not a British toe I've kind of from my travels I've kind of figured out who I like and how my how my last fits right so we're like a d and a half across the instep the american guys have a little bit of a wider foot sure we don't like to break in our shoes there's all of these little things that kind of go into account for that's so arch. true yeah yeah where in europe i remember when i was at fratelli rosetti i was like these shoes hurt my feet like yeah you must break them in for three weeks i'm like no no no, no. add some width to the last make them so they fit right now or i'm not gonna put them on right and they're like well you have to break them i'm like no Come on, guys. So when I was at Allen Edmonds, I had to, I mean, the, the level of education yeah. you have to give people, right? And I was also the the manager of, of a new location in San Diego when I opened that store. So even though there were people in San Diego that wore them, knew the brand, et cetera, there was this whole like flock of guys yeah. that never even heard of Allen Edmonds, didn't know why they were $425 yeah. a pair didn't know the definition of breaking in a shoe, like all this stuff. And, um, so I, t I totally understand what you're saying. Like, it's, yeah. it's so true. It's nine times out of 10, the guy's like, I don't, these don't fit. And they're like, no, but they do. They do. <laughs> but the thing is, is I think when you try to go against the grain and say, you have to wear them for five weeks, yeah, you lost me at that point. Right. 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 So what we do, we use a very soft insole, very soft outsole. It's already, so the average manufacturer, whether it's Allen Edmonds or a European brand, they don't want their shoes to crease when someone tries them on. Right. That's right, understandable. Because you can't sell them. Because you can't <laughs> yeah. sell them. For me, I've never been bought, nobody buys 30 pairs of a size 10. Right. For me, they're bought like a collection. And Stanley Silver, who was my first mentor at Fred Siegel Feet, he said to me, says, George, your shoes, you're not Gucci. You're not Prada. And I was like, okay, like, and it wasn't a put down. Right. It's, you're not a black shoe guy. Right. You don't have that logo and you don't have that brand and you haven't been doing it for 80 years. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. He says, you need to make shoes that are going to fit within who you are and what your customer wants. Right. He says, 
going forward, George, do not bring me anything unless it elicits some type of reaction. They might hate it or they might love it. And when they put these on, they don't want to break it in. Someone will suffer for a name brand. They're not going to suffer for you because you're too young. Right. And I was like, wow, that actually makes sense. And I stuck with those ethos all along where, okay, we're going to use a soft outsole, a soft insole. I want my leathers to crease. I want you wear my shoes twice. And they're like, these feel amazing. And that's what we hear from everybody. I don't care if you don't like the creases, then it's not for you. Right. Sure. Right. That's yeah, just yeah, yeah. every brand has who they are. The creases are your gate. That's probably that's possible. That's who you are. Right. The way you walk. Right. The and way I, you crease the shoe exactly is you. Is you. Yeah. yeah. You know, the it's way like you, your denim. Yeah, you know, for like sure. If yeah. you're into to raw denim, you got to have to break those in yeah, too. Exactly. But, you know, there's also other denim. But then the wear marks are like how, sure. you, how your wallet creates yeah. the outline on yeah. your back pocket or what have you. The way you sit, do you yeah. drive with it? If you don't drive with it, you may never crease it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all of those things. What do you think is one of the largest misconceptions about shoemaking? Uh, I think how easy it is. You know, like what we have. Even so, you said yourself it was easy, right? Like well, early days. <laughs> it's not easy. It's it's easy. Okay, so if early inspiration for me is Margella. Okay. Margella, the designer, right? Yes. Yeah. I have a pair of those. I think I have two pairs of those. Yeah, these are the only sneakers yeah. I wear anymore. So we got to get you in a pair of ours. You're going to try these on. You're going to like freak out. Okay. So if you look at what Margella designed and his team and him as the creative director, everything looks so simple. And it is simple once you figure it out, right? Right, right. It's, but it's not easy in the beginning. Right. It's really difficult. And I think that's the whole premise of what we do is we want things to look, because true luxury is also quiet, right? Um, I get what's happening with logos. That's, I'm not saying that's it not It comes true. and goes, though. I'm not saying that's not luxury. But yeah, what yeah. I'm saying is my clients love to fly under the radar, right? That's it's good who they are. They, it, so back to your Margiela comment, though, like I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think one of the better analogies that I've sort of come up with over the years is, you know, like an architect, you know, if you're doing steel, concrete and glass minimalism, in other yeah. words, like uber modern, those lines have to be straight. Those mistakes can't be visible because the, because of minimalism, you can witness the mistake that much easier. Right. So yeah. like the Margella thing about it being clean under the radar, simple, which is very not simple. It's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You do a made to order situation too, right? Yeah. Like a, that's program. kind of like our big business. So how does the, what, what is the process? How does it function? Let's say you're in Chicago, right? By the way, Hey guys, I read about you or I'm interested or you go on our website. On our website, you're going to be able to purchase as is, or you can design your own. There's two options. And we have our four top styles for men and women that we're launching with. And once you purchase, for example, a Nike ID, once you click the button, that's it. You're getting your shoe. With us, what we do is you've already answered what size do you wear in dress shoes or sneakers. Then it gives us an idea. Then we'll call you, send an email, Mr. So-and-so. Can we set up a call? We, we want to send you fit samples and swatches of what you're getting. And I, oh, wow. So you literally get fit samples in that email or the call. You could say, I'm a size 10 on one foot, 10 and a half on the other. I'm an E on one, D on the other. Like, and we'll send you fit samples until that's figured out. Sweet. Your size. Then you've already paid for it. So we send you the fit samples. You try them on. You're going to keep your swatches. 
you keep the swatch as the fit samples come back. Once it's confirmed, then we start your order and you're probably looking pre-pandemic. We're about six to eight weeks. Right now we're about eight to 12. Okay. We're just not getting all our materials. We order a thousand feet. We might get 700. Right. Right. So I'm I'm going through the same stuff, man. I I get to, I so that's kind of the way it works. (laughs) That part is not simple, but we've figured out we have less than a 1% return rate on our made orders. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, so like what's something that people should consider when ordering their first pair? Like, well, you know, if you're into tailoring, yeah. a navy suit, yeah. right, is usually the go-to first suit you ever have yeah. made. What, what about I, shoes? I, I would say before you go to style, you need to remember just because this is made based on your size, it's not going to be a running shoe. A lot of people don't understand that. They right. think, oh, they think it's custom or bespoke. It's like, no, that's not bespoke. This is made to order. Bespoke is something different. Bespoke was that blue boot that I showed you downstairs. Right, where you have your personal yeah, last. I'm adjusting to your size as close as possible, right? And once you confirm, that's what we can do. I can do things that make it softer or a bit more stiff or a higher heel by quarter inches, you know, like a quarter inch. But I think what everybody, every guy needs is a, a really cool brown ankle boot because that ankle boot you can rock with jeans, you can rock with chinos, a casual suit um, in one of our finishes. That that to me is... Now, do you mean more like a Chelsea? No, this one is a little bit... Not everybody will go here. I think like a two or three eyelet... I think ours is a... I don't know if it's two or three eyelet ankle boot, like a chukka boot. Okay, chukka, yeah. yeah like, a, like a cool chukka boot. Sure. This one we do really well with, but I don't... I, some guys have started with this. I go with a chukka boot. Guys, I, I mean, I can't even yeah. wear... Like, I, I had this really narrow... Chelsea, beautiful boot. Yeah. And my wife, like, for first of all, she hated it. And second of all, I just felt weird wearing it. Really? Like, even just, like, looking in the mirror. And, was it and, too like, long or? No, I just think it was just a little too British. Okay. Like, it, it just looked like, it just wasn't Wesley. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it yeah. wasn't me. Even though I loved the way it looked on other people, I tried it myself. Big failure. <laughs> There's shoes that we, that we make that I won't wear that I really yeah. think are beautiful. Yeah. It's just not me. Are you a boot uh, guy? I find I, that I'm boot twenty four seven. Yeah, I love boots. I, I'm I wear boots in the summer, boots in the winter. Uh, I don't have a lot of shoes. I have a couple pairs of shoes, but for me, what I do is I get the same style in different colors until I get sick of it. Right. And then I donate them or give them away, and then sure. on to the next style. Yeah. But yeah, this boot, it's a the double gore. I I love it. We do a uh, side zip. I don't wear that one for right. some reason. I don't like the way it looks. I don't know what it is, but it's one of our top sellers. So you said you make your laces here. We, the second sewing machine, we make all our shoelaces. So uh, take me through that because they look like they would just be like woven or like, Oh, okay. So this, all right. So I don't even know how to describe this. It's well, like it's fabric so, folded over. It's a cotton poly blend, okay. which makes them indestructible. Our laces don't rip. That's another thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Our laces don't rip because it's cotton poly and it's just a folding and how to finish them. God, these are super light shoes. Yeah. That, so the sneakers are made in Mexico. <clears throat> we make our sneakers in Mexico. And then when some of them we finish here, some of them they come finished like that. And, and how much are these? I if think they're that already one finished? is like 350 And then if you finish them here? Well, it's a little bit more if we finish them. But I think it, that one probably would come at three fifty. We've experimented with both. We're going to try to have everything finished in Mexico. It doesn't quite, obviously doesn't look 
the same way as we make ours. Right. But they still finish them by hand. They hand color them there. And what kind of material is this? So that's a calf upper crust. It starts off as a nude crust and it gets colored. Uh, the lining is what we, the, my sneakers are online, but around the ankle is the Mestizo. It's the Gold Lamb uh, combo that we talked about. Sure, on the back and of the uh, then watch we have, If you look inside of that one, where most sneakers, if you take your sneaker off, yeah. you remove the removable insole, you're either gonna have a cardboard or a sponge. I actually have leather on the inside of mine. So the cardboard will never mold your foot. And there's nothing wrong with it. They want it for rigidity. They want that shape to stay in the shoe. And if it's sponge, the rebound's gonna go away after some point, right? Okay. With leather, it actually molds to your foot. Sure. And it has a different feel to it. So these things are like super flexible, soft. There's a leather uh, insole on that one as well. Right, right. This took a little while to develop and it has a bit of a vintage feel. Kind of like a- It's kind of a court shoe. Yeah, court shoe, old tennis shoe. Uh, but at the same time, I wanna do something that nobody else is doing, right? It looks like something, but not exactly. There's very difficult to make a shoe with no toe. The toe, the toe bumper. Do you see how there's no toe right. lift on that on right, the last? Right, right. That was that was a pain. Yeah. So you were telling me downstairs that you guys do what's called a Blake welt. It's a it's a Blake or a McKay construction. So how does the, that differ welt, from a hand welt? Well, the hand welt it's in the stitching, right? Right. So the hand welt you you add the leather and you're doing this kind of a cross stitch to make it super strong and basically it's indestructible. What we do in a Blake or a McKay stitching, you glue the welt and it has teeth that actually attach to, let's say if this was the last here, it attaches, then you run a stitch this way. Through each tooth? It kind of catches the teeth. Got it. Then you put a midsole, actually the midsole gets stitched. So it's the welt, midsole gets glued on, and then you have the stitch that goes up and down this way. I see. And it catches the teeth and the midsole. Then you add the outsole. Now, why do you choose to do that method versus a hand well, aside from, I don't know, cost, uh, time? Well, I mean, it's also flexibility. I've tried welted, we can do hand welted. We've had people, and it just doesn't do well for us. It's not my customer. Um, there, there are machines now that will do a welted construction that's super flexible, but you can't just make what we're making. Like, they're not gonna want 20 pairs, right? I see what you're saying. So the, the physical flexibility of the shoe. Yeah, that's a huge part. So it's so, a lot more stiff if it's a hand welt. A, much more stiff. Even a welted shoe, it's much more stiff because of the stitching. It's meant to prevent water from getting into the shoe. And they say you better for resoling, but we have no problem resoling our shoes. We actually put it back on the last. Most of our clients send all their shoes back to us and there's never been an issue. Unless the shoe's already dead. If somebody wanted to do a bespoke shoe through yeah. you, which you can do, yeah. what does that time kind of turn around? You know, it's really not a time because, so made to order, we already know how long that takes to make and everything. A bespoke shoe, we have one shoe downstairs. We can't, he hasn't come back in six months to come and pick up his shoes. Oh, I see. So, but here's the thing with bespoke. It's a matter of preference. If I tell you this is it, you're like, no, my pinky toe still hurts. I got to adjust it so your pinky toe doesn't hurt anymore, right? <laughs> That's it. Or a lot of guys, a lot of athletes, they play, basketball players play with two socks, right? So they have to get used to that, what that feels like, what that shoe, a leather sole, what that feels like without two socks and no padding. So can you give me more padding? Sure, we can give you more padding, but this is what it's going to look like. 
There's all of this hand-holding that goes on when it's a full bespoke shoe. So when a basketball player, and I have heard that before, that yeah. a lot of guys wear two socks, is that literally for cushion only? I think it's probably cushion. I've never asked them why. Or sweat absorption? Uh, it's probably cushion. It's probably what they've always done, right? So if you're wearing two socks, you're going up a size to a size and a half possibly. Especially in width. Yeah, yeah, for sure width. Yeah. Right across the instep. And then some of the more ankle braces on top of the in between the socks. Right. And you have some guys that play with orthotics. Right. So all of those things, and that's the extreme, right? Um, I say when it's a full bespoke, you for me to develop the first last, right? And typically we like to use off, we like to go with last that we have, and it's gonna be based on your measurements. We have a guy right now, the, the guy who hasn't picked up his shoes or his boots, he's a 10 and a half with a width of a 14. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Massive foot. Duck feet. I mean, yeah, he's got a really big foot. And we had to make him, I'll show him to you afterwards, we had to make him look so they didn't look like that. Right, right. So, so you're just playing a lot taller. with the instep. Yeah. You're playing a lot with the instep so it'll open up as he puts it on. Sure. So that's part of the, the bespoke. Um, I would say bespoke is anywhere six months to a year with all the back and forth. I think six months, best case scenario, because you're developing a brand new last. Now, I can make adjustments, like let's say a semi-custom. Let's say you come in here, hey, George, I'm a size 10, 10 and a half. I wore orthotics. We would actually adjust the width or the height, all the specs of your orthotic to the last. The problem with orthotics is you have to go up half size, right? Because your, your foot's lifted in orthotics. Right. So now you're, you're, you're coming out around the ankle and you're really pushing across the instep. Right. So with the adjustment to the last, it actually sits lower. Interesting. Yeah. I put it on the bottom of the last. Which is not anything hard, right? Right. right. But it is. It's a little bit it's of. It's an extra step. It's an extra step. So we get a lot of that. I most people don't need full full bespoke, but if you have a ten and a half with a width of a fourteen, yeah. you need full bespoke. And you want it to look a certain way, right? You don't want it to look like an orthopedic shoe. Mm -hmm. So that I would say full bespoke six months to a year. Uh, you do have your own custom last. This, you saw the last downstairs. Those are all custom last for all the guys. That was, and then those guys have a last without the adjustments. If you make more than one, then I'll go and make you a last. Got it. If you're only gonna buy one shoe, then it's we're gonna work off the adjustments because what happens is those custom adjustments, over time as you tap on it, the, sh the size is gonna go away, right? Mm. But if you have a resin last or a true last, you, you can tap on all you want and it's not going to change the size. Of right. It. Sure. So depending on what the client wants, if he says, Hey, I'm going heavy with this thing, I'm going to want five pairs. You're like, okay, I'm going to send this and I'll get the last made. We used to work with Italy. Now we work with Mexico, especially since the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. We've, we've always worked with both for us. We have heel suppliers in Italy here in the States and Mexico. Um, but we're tending to find that it's the same thing because all of the leather from Mexico is American beef. So it goes from here to Mexico and then it comes back to here. Yeah. Oh man. I've had this conversation so many times about apparel too and how like cheap t-shirts are such a larger carbon footprint than expensive t-shirts, yeah. which makes zero sense because it has to travel all around the yeah. world. You're actually cutting things out. It's so crazy. Um, yeah, that's and it's that's all insane. about the dollar, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, when I was at Toomey, I was I'm not gonna say who it was. So I'm in the factory and I said, and this is an Italian brand, 
I said, when did these arrive? Thinking, you know, because these factories, they want to see. They're like, oh, no, these are shipping to Eastern Europe. From Eastern Europe, they're going to Italy and then get finished there. And you're like, you're just kind of crushed. Wow. You're like, seriously? Wow. It just doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, I, I get it. But that's not an honest thing, in my opinion. Well, right? I think there were some Italian brands <laughs> and... I, I can't name names because I don't know the validity of yeah. them, but things that were like made in China, yeah. shipped to Italy, finished in Italy, yeah. and then had tags inside that said made in Italy. Yeah. Well, it, every law is... So U.S., from my understanding, the U.S. is pretty strict about what they how what portion has to be made in the U.S. for it to say made in U.S. Yeah. Japan is super strict. The Germans are really strict. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what other countries because... I look at shoes and they say handmade in Italy and you're like at 300 bucks, this isn't There's handmade. No way. Yeah. It's not handmade, right? $300 is not handmade, but you can say made in, but don't say handmade. I've right, had people right. like, Oh, I had this handmade shoe. And I said, how much did you pay? 250. I'm like, okay. You know, and ha hands had to touch it as it was going through a machine. Exactly. But that's so, not handmade. That's just no, not, no, I know. it's, it's not handmade. Uh, when someone is using, you know, cause I've seen these beautiful factories. For Telly Rossetti, oh my gosh, beautiful factories. They actually hand color their shoes. There's a lot of hands that touch their shoes, but there isn't one guy cutting it out by hand. They cut their tassels by hand, but not the entire shoe. They could never make. They make hundreds of thousands of pairs a year. It doesn't work that way, you know? That's a real industrial factory. Yeah. What is sort of the structure of, of Esquivel? Because you, 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 you said you had business partners. Was that just financial business partners? Or, they actually... Or they keep me sane. So, oh, really? Uh, no. My, um, so I you own, drive them nuts. Is that I, the exchange? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I drive them nuts. Um, in terms of the structure, we're an LLC. I control most of the company. And these are guys that I've known for years. Most of my partners are my CFO, uh, my attorneys, guys that love my shoes and okay. said, Hey, I want to help you. Cool. Um, we did have a partner in 2019 and those guys pulled out, which okay. was going to be, they were going to buy a, a large stake of the brand and then they just pulled out and disappeared. So, hmm. but I think for us, it's going well right now. Like the way it is, we're still trying to figure out this thing, right? We haven't had like a steady 18 months of what this should be. Right, of course. We've had six months of amazing, as I told you, and then nothing, right? Right. I think for us, the next phase is to get Esquivel Lex off the ground because I don't have to manufacture this. I can make 100,000 pairs. I can make 300,000 pairs. And what our goal is to develop, uh, I think Mexico's untapped, and I've been going there for so many years to develop products for other people. Now, where are you going when you go? So we go to Leon, we go to Guadalajara, we go to different parts. I'm working on... Uh, a couple other projects with uh, the art, uh, the indigenous people. So, and that's kind of some unisex projects and some women's projects. But these are made in Leon and Guadalajara. Cool. So, hand lasting them. This one is a Blake. Uh, this one is the Strobel construction. But I think now we're hand lasting them. I like the hand lasting better because when you use the, which is California or Strobel construction, mm -hmm. it tends to pull up because. You stitch the insole to the upper, and you have to stretch it to uh, get it to to feel right. But as soon as you take the last out, sometimes it pops up a little bit. Oh, I see. So you get a little, so you get like this a little pucker. Yeah. Well, it's not a pucker. It just it wiggles the sole. Also, because this is leather, it's not a hard cardboard. If I had a hard cardboard insole, it would control that, right? You'd say you're not moving. This is it. 
I don't want that. I want this to be as natural as possible. So I think we're going to go back to hand lasting. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Just little things what like is, that. What is your last name? Like Esquivel. What, no, no, but I'm saying like what, what nationality so is it? So on my mother's side, I'm first generation from Mexico. Okay. On my father's side, I'm second generation from Mexico. Okay. The origin is Basque. And the definition of the name that uh, is the house behind the lime trees. Hence the two lime trees when you walk in, when you walk in Esquivel house. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. The house behind the lime trees. Now, do you go to Spain? Uh, I've been to Spain a couple times when I was working with Tumi as the creative director. I went, I went there a couple times. What year was that? Uh, I was creative director 13, 14, and part of 15. Now, how did that come about? Uh, all because of the CFD Evoke Fashion Fund. So, so the, the CFD Evoke Fashion Fund, when I say change my life, and thank you, Anna, Winter, and the CFTA, literally my life changed. So I didn't win. And the accessories uh, editor at Vogue says, George, I know you didn't win. I know it hurts. Trust me. We like what you're doing. Anna really likes what you're doing. You just need some guidance. I'm like, okay. And whatever. Annoyed. I remember got drunk that night. I didn't right. win. Right. But I was also older than most people going through it because now I'm married. I got kids. You know, it's just like I'm, I'm about 10 years older than my than my counterparts. There's some that are my age or even a little bit older, but for the most part, I'm a little bit older. You got different levels of responsibility. I, yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking to myself, crap, if they open up the door, I'm putting my foot in it and you're not closing it on me. I'm gonna take advantage of this. So they said, call us. Okay, I called them, I called the accessories editor. What do I need to do? Okay, you're gonna meet with Anna. You need to ask her a couple questions. She's gonna ask you what you want and it's on and I'm like, Okay, me not knowing who Anna Winter was. I really? Not, I Well, I knew who she was, but not really. Like, I was not in I fashion. I mean, Margiela's kind of a deep cut. Yeah, but I wasn't, <laughs> but it wasn't like, I wasn't going to fashion weeks, right? I was going right. to, I started a trade show because I didn't, I didn't like trade shows. I. Wait, you started a trade yeah, show? Yeah, I had a trade show with my partners. It was called Guild at one point. Oh, I heard about yeah. Guild. Yeah, the first season we had a Maybach, a Bentley and a Rolls pick up the buyers. <laughs> Where in was Vegas. that? Was that here? It was in Vegas at the Palms Place Hotel. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. So we did that for about three seasons. And then Ran another, out of Rolls Royce money? <laughs> no, well, no. We actually made money from day one. Oh, that's great. What happened was the other trade shows started threatening the brands. Uh, that if they continued to show with us right, in Vegas, they wouldn't let them show yeah. in New York and Paris. Right, right, right. It is what it is. I learned. I didn't do it to make money. I did it because I wanted to show with my friends and I'm sick of paying five grand and they give you a meal ticket for a drink and a sandwich. Right, right. So that's kind of how everything I've done, I'm like, you know what? And we made money from day one. That's and it incredible. it was really cool. But God, uh, I've forgotten about Guild. Yeah, so we had Guild at the Palms Place, which was amazing. So that's awesome. uh, I don't win. I, I say, okay, I'm gonna have a meeting with Anna Winter and I'm in there. She's like, so what is it that you want? And you know, through this whole process of the CFDA, Vogue Fashion Fund, they're putting you through the paces. Who are you? What do you want to do? And I realized I didn't understand branding and I didn't understand international business and I didn't even understand big business. I had a good business, like a really, really good business, but I, would sh I was the guy. I'd show up to your house or at a recording studio and you 30 pairs of shoes at 800 bucks, like that's not a bad day, right? right. But it wasn't bigger. And I think what the CFDA showed me was how to get, how to dream bigger. So I tell Anna, I'd like to have an understanding of international business 
and understand branding. And she says, uh, you need to go back to school. I'm like, well, how am I gonna go back to school? Not knowing the power of Anna Winter, right? I kind of did, but not really. So, okay. So she says, oh, you have to go back to school. I'm like, how am I gonna do that? No, silly, you need to consult. How am I gonna do that? My consulting was I'd been designing sandals for local brands and I worked with local brands, sneakers and sandals. It wasn't like the international Europeans, right? So I'm walking out of her office and my Blackberry's blowing up. The fashion director of Net-A-Porte, uh, Anna Winter says that we need to meet and I'm in town. Can you meet tomorrow? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, this is kind of crazy. That's the door so opening. That for was you. a door opening. Yeah. And two weeks later, hey, Fratelli Rossetti just reached out to Anna and they're looking for a creative person. Are you interested? I'm like, well, yes. Yeah. And they said, you need to do a presentation. I'd never done a presentation at Fashion Week. I'm like, how do I do a presentation? I didn't even know what a studio was. Everything was out of the garage or my, what we call the distribution center, which was my garage. So what did your presentation consist of? Uh, so I literally, I asked her, I said, I don't know what to do. She's a, bring out your best styles. Uh, one of the brothers of Fratelli Rossetti is gonna come and look at your styles, separated by men and women. This is the season. I'm like, okay, cool. So I did that. He came through. He said, I love your work. I was like, okay, cool. Now, at this point, we were making everything already in-house. Okay. We'd already been making everything in-house. And he said, I really love what you do. I said, thank you. He says, would you be interested in consulting and working with us? They wanted to make a play to come back into the States. Mm. And I said, sure. So I get the full weight of Vogue behind me because I'm one of her kids now, right? Part of the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. And Vogue supports it. Then I said, well, what am I going to do? I said, I got an idea. And going back to that loafer. So they hire me and I'm flying to Milan every four to six weeks for two years from LA. So I'm going to Milan. Like This is insane. Their factory. I'm learning so much in real manufacturing. These guys have been around since the fifties. And I said, you know what? We need to do something with J crew. And they didn't understand J crew because they didn't understand the mail order business. We did because the US is Sears and all of these catalog businesses. To sure. them, catalog is cheap. Same thing in Mexico. Catalog is cheap, where us, catalog's not cheap. We're such a big country, right? right. We had to do catalogs. You used to be able to order a house from Sears, like a whole house. Yeah. So I finally convinced Diego, the brother, I said, let's go meet with him. He met with Jenna Lyons. And he sees Jenna and all her amazingness. So you guys, pitched, you guys pitched J. Crew. I pitched J. Crew. So J. Yeah. J. Crew didn't seek you out. No, J. Crew didn't know see, you. J Jenna did because she was one of the board members of the CFDA, CFDA of the Fashion Fund. Got it. So she knew who I was. And I texted her I said, or I emailed her, Jenna, I have an idea. And because what I did is, so they showed me their collection. And it was very European, exactly what you said about that boot. Yeah. I said, there's no way I would ever rock these things. They're cool, but I don't dress that way, right? It's I don't, not J. Crew. It's well, it's not even me. It wasn't me. So I took this famous loafer and their famous wingtip and I threw them in the washing machine. And it comes out and I'm like, that's a shoe. And the brothers start yelling at each other and screaming, la la la. And I said to the girl, I said, What are they saying? They're pissed off that you washed something that is so heritage. I mean, and one brother liked it, the other one didn't like it. I just, I literally took their name and I put it in the washing machine. I said, here you go. 
that's what we pitched J. Crew, and she's like, these are beautiful. It's kind of funny that Jenna Lyons show that she just did. She was wearing the shoes in one of the episodes, oh, and funny. she credited Fred Fratelli Rossetti. And all I did is took a classic shoe and washed it, literally. And I said to them, I said, guys, here's the story. Let's. This is supposed to be because I'm a romantic because I never had adventures as a kid. Mm. I started having adventures later in life, mm -hmm. and my my life. The way what kept me sane was being a romantic. Mm -hmm. Wow, if I could be on stage, this is what I'd wear. Wow, if I could do this, this is what I would have. If I had the money to do this, I mean, keep in mind, I was a poor kid, like really poor. That's exactly how I've approached Standard H. Like, yeah. I've made this stuff that I wanna wear yeah. first. Like, I am customer number one. And I, yeah. I, I can barely afford my yeah. stuff. Like, uh, jo Jonathan Ward says the yeah. same thing. Yeah. He's like, I can't afford my yeah. cars. Exactly. You know, it's one of those things, but I mean, somebody's got to wear the samples. Somebody's you know got to wear mean? a sample. And, and, and for me, it's like not everything fits me, right? Right. I'm also designing. I'm in between sizes yeah. in my own apparel brand. I mean, I, my guy, the guys that I, my friends that are musicians, they're 5'11", 160 pounds. You're like, oh God, I yeah. wish I had that body. Soaking wet. I mean, yeah, yeah I'm like, I'm like a 48. So yeah. let me ask you this. So when you start to work with somebody like J. Crew, like what, what is that conversation like other than, hey, Jenna, like check this out. Like, is, does she get to decide in that she decided. context? So she, she didn't have to talk to Mickey Drexler no, about it. No, she was the creative director. Mickey Drexler, she oh. actually called Mickey Drexler in. So I, it's, I show up and then Jenna's like, I love all your accoutrements. And I had my bag and I'm a bad guy. Right. And I have my, my totes. And she's like, I love all of this, George. What's going on? The nicest woman in the world. Yeah. A true visionary. Sure. Who she is on the show is who I experienced as she was. So sharp so amazing so talented knows how and a true creative director right sure knows how to manage things so she goes what do you got i said well let me tell you a little bit this is diego and they knew the brand yeah everybody knows for tell they've been around madison avenue they have a store and they've been around for a long time sure and i said here's the shoes and she's like oh my gosh i love these and it was the most expensive shoe they'd ever sold yeah. And they sold them. They sold them. Good sell through. It wasn't, yeah, it was a good sell through. It wasn't like thousands and thousands right, right, of pairs. Right, right, right. It wasn't meant to be that. Was it mostly just in their flagship stores? No, I don't remember where they went. Okay. But it was a loafer and a lace up of like a red, a green, a black. And then Mix, Mickey comes in. He's all, F yeah, let's do it. This is cool. Like, yeah. That was it. That's My great. job was done. That's My job sick. was done. I love that. So that was, that was my first, that was with Fratelli Rossetti. So then Anna Wintour starts this thing called Americans in Paris, where <sighs> she wanted to expose Americans to the European market. And I had a couple Japanese accounts through friends, but nothing big. I'd been trying to get Sarah from Colette to see my product. Oh man. Waris, who was my class 2009 of the fashion fund, the CFDA actor, and then he had a jewelry line, super cool guy. And he's, on, he's in all the Wes Anderson movies. We, were, we became buddies. I made him some pink chukka boots and I think he ended up having like eight pairs. Same pink, same pink. Sick. And so he, I'd been trying to get Sarah because the fashion fund was much different than it is now. They actually, it wasn't as fast as it is now because mm -hmm. of social media. They, there was a buildup, right? And it was magazine. Oh yeah, I remember. And there was this hand holding and I'm not saying it doesn't happen now and I'm not, and I haven't experienced it, but it literally changed my life. Yeah. And I can tell you from experience, they guided me through the whole process. They mentored me in a real mentoring way. Um, so 
we're in Paris and this one's crazy. The first season of Americans in Paris and we're in the Palais Royale upstairs and I'm like, oh, this is crazy. And Anna invited uh, the ambassador to France's wife, uh, Geoffroy, who was the CEO of the Richemont group of, no, I'm sorry, not the Richemont group, of Chloe. He comes through, he looks, I love your shoes. Would you be interested in a collaboration? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Say no more. Say no more. So now I'm doing a collaboration <laughs> with Chloe. It took a little while to get off the ground, but, and there was some hiccups there, but that went, right? And then Tommy Hilfiger then sponsors American Americans in Paris. And him and I become friendly. And he likes what I'm doing. He says, George, I really, really love what you're doing. I said, wow, thank you. And he says, would you ever be interested in doing a collaboration? I'm like, duh. Say no more. Say no more. Here we go. (laughs) And I I asked him one time, I said, the night, and now talk about a humble, amazing person that wants everybody to succeed. Him and Anna. and He'll figure. He'll figure. Really? Yeah. And all of these people, what I have found, the people that I've worked with, they want other people to succeed, That's which great. has been amazing. Yeah. I can still text Tommy and not that I do. And hey, congratulations. Thank you so much. I miss you. Like that's kind of the relationship now, right? Right. It's not like, hey buddy, let's hang out. Right, that's right. not my relationship with anybody. And I don't want anybody to think that that is my relationship because sure, sure, sure. I have my family, I have my thing, but these people have guided me and mentored me along my path. That's incredible. So Tommy, I said, what's, why would you want to do the collaboration? He says, well, George, two things. You're going to give me some credibility to my brand and I'm going to give you worldwide exposure. I'm like, okay. So we ended up making a thousand pairs of shoes. This guy does, does things the way bigger than luxury brands, in my opinion. So I get an email. They're having bloggers come to get fitted for shoes at our workshop in Orange County. And what year is this? I have to look maybe seven years ago. Oh, okay. So a while ago, So it was a while ago. So he flew all the bloggers in internationally. Everybody got fitted for shoes. And I'm thinking, well, they're going to pull up in a van. Limo after limo comes rolling in. It was like guild. Like crazy. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But Tommy is so smart. He hires the best. Right. Literally hires the best to do the jobs that need to be done. He's not like, nah, we're not real luxury. We're not charging $10,000 for this or $1,000. No, he doesn't skimp. And he treats his people so well. That's amazing to hear. So all of these bloggers come in. And then we go to the Ivy from Orange County, the Ivy for lunch. Oh my God. Then we have an event at the store that used to be on Robertson. Then we have a dinner at the Chateau Marmont. So here's the kicker. I think he converted six of the flagship stores around the world into an Esquivel or Tommy Hilfiger Esquivel workshop, the windows. It's kind of crazy. The Champs-Élysées, the one in Robertson, I think the one on Regent Street, if it was open, I mean, it was crazy. Wow. So that's, then it keeps getting better. So here's where it gets crazy. So my thing is, I'm always talking to Vogue and what do I need to do? This is amazing. You, what can I do to support? Cause you, I realize you have to give back, right? You can't just be taken. You got to give back. So initiatives, I would always support. How do we make this happen? So I get an email one day from Ricky DeSole who's Domenico Dosoli's daughter, right? Okay. From the Gucci movie. Yeah, Gu- Gucci and, group. And again, Ricky, sweetheart, amazing. She's now at Nordstrom, I believe. She's doing something with Nordstrom. But we had become friends because she was an assistant to an accessories editor, and she gets promoted. She's, and she sends me an email, I call her. She says, Toomey's looking for a creative director. 
and we think it should be you. Are you interested? I'm like, well, well duh. Right. Here we go again. So I met with a CEO. It's kind of funny because there was an agent who was trying to get me a job with Toomey at the time, and he was talking to the vice president, someone else. And the CEO at the same time had reached out to Anna Winter. I'm looking for a creative director. So I met with him. So it was like the perfect storm. Perfect storm. And I had asked the creative director, I said, look, I don't design luggage. He goes, it's not what I'm looking for. It's your aesthetic. You do understand bags. Cause I've done bags. We did a couple bags of Fratelli Rossetti, which did well, right? What all these that you're seeing, like the duffels over there, that's all to me. And I've always played with it. And I was doing things at Fratelli Rossetti. I just wasn't, I've never, been anywhere to fully immerse myself in anything. So was Toomey the one that came up with that sort of wave pattern aluminum case, or is that uh, you? That was that started when I first got there. Okay, it so it didn't that, get completed okay. until we were we were in early talks for that. Okay, it's kind of funny. The new creative director and I have this battle. He's a friend of mine. He was VP of design when I was there, and he worked for me. Okay, and we're always talk about what's mine and what's Who, his. Yeah, whose designs whose? Whose designs yeah. whose? Because at the end of the day they were all my designs if I was a creative director, right? right so it's just right, kind of one of those things. Right, right, and he's yeah. like, damn you, George, that was mine. I'm like, sorry, Victor, it was mine. Right. It doesn't matter that you sketched it. Under it was your mine. purview. Exactly. Yeah. So You could have turned it down, but you didn't. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I meet with a CEO. That's interesting. And he says, I want, I need you to bring what you do to our brand and elevate the brand. And then going into it, and I had to carry to me. That was what I carried my luggage that I and I did custom things to the bags, to my to me bags that weren't being done there. I added strips of leather to my pull tabs. I wrapped my handles, but I always wore I always bought black. Right. So that's something that I implemented, which now to this day still sells. Oh, that's it's cool. An accent kit with zipper pulls and handle wraps. Uh, nice. Little things like that. So we meet and tells me what he wants from me. I'm like amazing i think we met in like september october and i started january 1 of 2013 okay and that was it that's a whole nother adventure wow yeah so that was really really cool um through so his direction was make the brand cool do some cool stuff what i ended up doing and i remember meeting with even marcus is i took a lot of what they were doing and they had a lot of categories that i didn't understand but they look similar and I wanted to, I wanted it to be more like, whether it's my footwear with clothes, have everything not be silos, but work together more like sportswear, right? Right. So sportswear, you want that jacket to look like the jeans or you want the whatever, the sweater, everything's got to match. And that's what I did. I said, guys, even if it's not the same material, let's go with the same colors. Right. And I remember it started working and that was kind of what we did and where it was something had to be very feminine. I'm like, no, just put gold zippers on it it'll work the gold zippers for the women like and it's not about there's nothing wrong with the company they were doing great sure he just wanted to elevate it a bit so we ended up doing a collaboration with colette which was insane which is what you wanted which is what i wanted with them i had already i was already in colette um oh, okay yeah i was already in colette we ended up sponsoring americans in paris for a couple seasons we did a collaboration with public school where the bags walked down their runway um and it just it was an amazing time for me. I, what I learned from them, I think was, uh, at all the other companies, when money came up, they'd push me out of the room. Like you need to leave now here. I was one of the executives. I was a creative director. So understanding big business in that way, not to say my business is that big, but to be able to understand and 
understand. And it was, I remember the CEO said, I really like you because you have your own business. You understand this, right? You're not just like sketching off in La La Land. Right. I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I actually, so I remember sending Anna an email after to me. I said, thank you for sending me back to school. Yeah. I was so, so earlier I, 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 I did all that I could not to interrupt you because I thought that that's maybe what she meant. That's exactly what she meant. You know, she sent me back to school, right? That's I mean, amazing. She sent me all over the world. She got me for Teller Rossetti, Chloe, Tommy Hilfiger, and Toomey. So when you're doing brand deals with people like a Tommy Hilfiger, for example, you said you may or may not have been kicked out of the room for financial discussions. How does that brand deal work? Like, do they pay you as a, a creative? Are they paying you for your shoes as the wholesale I mean, price? Like, I, I, I how think, do you make money on that I think deal? it just depends. So... For Telly Rossetti, I was a consultant. Okay. So I had a fee. It didn't okay. matter how many shoes we sold. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, Chloe, there was a fee, a design fee. Okay. Doesn't matter how many shoes they sold. That's kind of the simplest way, right? Sure. If you're enter with Toomey, I was I was consulting. I did. There's no back end points, nothing like that. Got it. Got Tommy it. Hilfiger, it was they bought him at cost, plus a small percentage. Cool. And my thing was is with Tommy, it was a special deal, because here is this guy that doesn't need me, right? Right. But yet, I have to look at it and say, I can't be money hungry. This is something I'm gonna learn it's from. It's because he wants you. Yeah, he exactly. He doesn't need you. Yeah, right. exactly. And I was gonna learn something from him. He was already a great guy. He gave back. Like, okay, we're not losing money on this. The exposure that we got, I think it was GQ Italy did like a four-page spread on us and uh, Neymar was on the cover when he was just a kid. I mean, there was just so much press. And I remember seeing Tommy said, what do you think? He's all, oh my gosh, George's press is crazy. I'm like, okay. So I, I kid, but I like to say I'm the precursor of what he did with Bella Hadid. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Remember how they did the big Bella Hadid? Well, he also has like a huge thing with Lewis Hamilton. That yeah, I mean, driver. I was, not that he hasn't done collaborations. Sure, but, sure, sure. And look, I'm not that name. And then my stuff didn't like fly out because it was a different deal. They're right. handmade shoes. And it's a loafer and a lace up, and it's not—it's not the flash. I mean, George, you're an attractive man, but you're no Bella Hadid. Exactly, and I'm not no Lewis Hamilton either, right? Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting, man. So, but, like, but, after so, all of this, yeah. like, what did you learn about branding? I mean, I—it's not one of those. It's not one thing. I right. think, as Anna said, I went to school and branding. What I did learn from branding, there is not one way to do it. Everybody's different because I can't implement what I learned at Toomey here, I mean, they're going on $600 million a year business, right? Right. Like that's, you Astronomical. can't, you can't, I can't implement, even with Tommy, billions of dollars, I can't implement those things. I right. think it's telling a story, being concise, understanding who you are. I remember telling Tommy, he says, so what's the plan for your brand? I said, I want to keep it as pure as possible, as long as possible. He goes, do it as long as you can. That is an amazing, he says, and he's another one who said, George, creating something luxury takes so much work, effort, and energy. He, he literally said it's like a, a brand is like a, an entity. It's a living, breathing entity, right? Sure, yeah. If you don't feed it whatever it requires, it's going to die. And I was like, wow, that's super interesting. And, and those are the things that I just picked up along the way talking to all these amazing people. Let me, <laughs> let me ask you a qualifying yeah. question to that yeah. statement because – I, I too feel like Standard H is an upper echelon type of brand, yeah. right? From manufacturing to quality of goods to even aesthetic, yeah. right? And, and the other brands that I associate with, yeah. 
right? Um, some of them aspirational, some of them just run of the mill. So if you're feeding the beast, so to speak, are you referring to releases of product? Are you talking about Instagram posts? Like I think it's all of it, right? It's everything, right? It's all of it what the brand is. Yeah. So if I go silent and I don't post anything for three weeks, well, like, well, what happened? You're, right. it, things, I think what I've learned since the pandemic, and here's an interesting thing. Pre-pandemic, I would sell a product mm-hmm. every three to five posts, hmm. which is not bad, right? Mm-hmm. Every three to five posts with my little followers that we have, post-pandemic, it's probably every 15 posts. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. And, and, and it's about the noise that's out there, right? I was and just about to say this. And it's not that my customers forgot about me. It's that we're all being barraged with so much. Sure. Now they're talking about Instagram is not relevant. Now you got to go to TikTok. And now you got to go to Pinterest. And now you got to do... So, and, it, and not to say that those things are going to work for me, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you have to feed whatever you're... You got to feed your clients. Yeah. What do your clients want? Some clients hate emails, so you're not going to send an email. Some clients want to see who the celebrity is that came here. Some clients want to have a, an event, a dinner, right? So we have dinners when people come up and we're like, wow, that was pretty amazing. We just sold cool. a lot of product. And, th- and I think that's what feeding the beast means, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And understanding um, when, I, when I get hired, people say, what would you do with our brand? I said, it's no different than I have three kids. You have to study what those kids need. Right, they're all different. My son got spanking so much that I had to stop spanking. I had to shave his head because that was a punishment to him. Where my girls, maybe one spanking their entire life. And I think that's no different than a brand, right? What does that brand need? Who is the customer that it's speaking to? And it's kind of look, being like a creative director. You know, a lot of people say, well, you've never done this or you've never done that. I never did luggage. The brand grew while I was there. We did some really cool stuff. And I think, and at the same time, I exposed that brand and I helped kind of move it forward in the sense of exposing what the brand is. It's beautifully made. Yeah, we took it out of just the black realm, right? And we did some beautiful leather pieces. But at the same time, we talked about luxury. They'd never been in Vogue before. Vogue hadn't really even paid attention to them to where Vogue was putting them in their magazine, not because of me, but also because it was a combo of me and Toomey, right? Right. The aesthetic of the bag, the quality of the bag, the chicness of what we're doing, the story that we're telling, that's what they wanted. That's great. Esquire as well, like all of this, all these magazines, and I think that's what being a creative director is. You can understand it's sticking to the core of the brand, right? Mm -hmm. I, at the time, so the whole concept of the X on bags, the Givenchy, Rottweiler was happening. Yeah, the t-shirt. And also on their bags. Yeah. And yeah. I, so you got to look at what's happening in, at the moment, right? So everything's graphic. So I can't put an animal on a Tumi bag, but what I ended up doing is putting a big X on the duffel bag. And that X actually did really well. Huh. And it's graphic. It's not offensive to Tumi customers. Right. But if I would have done, oh, let's just copy them and put a bird or something, like who's... Wall Street guys put a Doberman do on the exactly <laughs> or but that was that's the moment that's happening right yeah. the same thing like we did these slides for women and I remember I presented it to Barney's and they're like yeah it's not really us yet or the slides and I'm like man these are it this is the slide it's it it looks chic it's beautiful but then here comes Gucci with their slide thank you Gucci for opening up that door I've sold right. thousands of that slide 
because these big brands have opened up the doors to allow me to do certain things, right? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and I think that's where you have to understand what's happening. I didn't replicate Gucci, and I didn't say I'm gonna copy a slide. I had a slide and they told me no on my slide. You know, that's, it's not happening. But then Gucci opens up the door, then everybody else follows, right? right? right, right. Same thing with a Rottweiler. I would had to do something graphic on a bag, but I'm seeing what's happening and I'm seeing how something is working on bags and t-shirts. I'm like, let's just do an X. Yeah. And it worked out great. And it turned out really, really good. Yeah. Nice. All right. We, we have to talk about your watch. Yeah. So you're doing a really special piece collaboration with Tutima. Yep. German watch company. Yep. It is only 25 pieces. Only 20. It's a 25 kit item. So um how did it start what's so to, included so to tima this is um I, i'm still smiling because i can't believe i got my own watch right right i actually sold some of my watches after i got my own watch i mean there's there's really nothing baller nothing more baller than having your own watch if you're into watches yeah right? of course sure. if you're into watches and you have a watch with your name on it that's kind of crazy and to me it's like a dream come true so you want to hear how I got my first watch? Sure. So the first watch that I got, uh, we used to live in a motel, seven of us, my five siblings, my mom and dad. And at the time, my dad was hustling, whatever. He'd come to LA. He'd buy clothes and sell them, jewelry, sell them. So keep in mind, he's a drug addict and a drug dealer. So he's just always hustling. On one of those trips, I came with him. And next to where he's buying jewelry, there's a guy who had watches. And he just pulled out the Seiko SKX and showed it to me. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow. And then he's, I'm 13 years old. Yeah. And he tries to explain to me automatic. Right, right. I'm like, there's no battery. There's no battery. Right, I'm like, right. what? Yeah. And I'm blown away. And I'm thinking, wow. And I can't stop thinking about this watch. So I used to work at this house across the street from the motel where we lived. I got paid $1.25 an hour. I saved up my money, $125. I went and bought my watch. Now I got le crazy legitimacy. We used to get bussed up to the hill where all the rich kids went. I always wanted to surf. I couldn't afford a surfboard. I wanted a skateboard. I couldn't afford a skateboard. But I got this watch that now everybody's like. you have this like, sick dive watch. I got watch. this sick diver's watch. Everybody, and this is like right around when the G-Shock Frogman came out. And everybody's wearing that. And I show up with this sick diver's watch. And everybody's like, oh my gosh. My, my dad has one of yeah, those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, wow, that's crazy. So now I'm. It's, it's a whole thing with me, right? My dad keeps taking it from me and pawning it for drugs until I finally never got it back one time. On my 19th birthday, my girlfriend buys me the same type of watch, the Seiko SKX. Oh my God. I still have it to this day. Did you just like... Well, I mean, it was just, it's an emotional thing, Yeah, did you right? lose it that I, I kind she of, gave it to you? Yeah, it's, I had no idea that she literally surprised me with it. I. I didn't even understand. Which one did you have? The all black or the, the I had, Pepsi? I had the or? black dial. Okay. I had the black. I, oh, it's always the black dial for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but the black bezel? The black, the black bezel, yeah, black okay. dial. Yeah. That's what I have. That's, and I've had to the point where I've given that watch to all my friends over the years and my brothers all have it. The I gave SKX. that exact same watch to my dad. Yeah. And it's like years it's ago. It's literally the forerunner of watches. Indestructible. The so forerunner. It's, the, it's indestructible, right? Uh, so... I'm into watches and I'm in love with watches through the years. I couldn't afford like nice watches, right? I just $300, $400. I'd buy vintage more than anything. 
Cool. If I buy a vintage watch, I've had all kinds of vintage. But they're like, oh, nobody has that. That's a cool watch. Someone's going to ask me. Because I'm still rolling up to my client's houses. Like, what are you wearing? Oh, it's a vintage. Oh, wow. It's, I've never seen it. Yeah. I can't flex with my cheap whatever. Yeah, your platinum day-day. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's, like, <laughs> no, it's but it's a vintage watch. Yeah. And I was always making straps for it. Like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And I would always make straps for my clients. So then in 2007, we did a deal with a Chinese, a Taiwanese group. And I got some money and I went and bought my first watch. And that first watch was the Santos 100. Okay. And I had read about it. I'm like, oh my God, the story's beautiful. Was this on Rodeo? Or uh, no, go? I got this in uh, Laguna Beach. Okay. It was at a store and someone knew someone at the store and I went there. Nice. I, I scored on it. I don't know why I ever sold it. I sell my watches a lot. Okay. So I get this watch and now I'm hooked. I'm like, oh, then more projects start coming. And I would buy watches to mark kind of anniversaries of certain things. Then I buy it to Tima, the one I'm wearing right now in 2009. So this one is number 15 of 800. And it was to commemorate an anniversary with them. It's a GMT. What, what I fell in love with about is the Bordeaux dial. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of uh, like Cabernet looking yeah, dial. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So I have the watch all these years. It's the only one I haven't sold. I've sold the Santos 100. I almost cried. I don't know. After I sold it, I was like, why did I <laughs> why sell did it? Why did I do this? I only yeah. made a thousand bucks, right? Right. I sold a couple Rolexes. Like, why did I sell Rolexes? I've had uh, the Blancpain 50 Fathoms. I'm like, why did I sell that? Oh, wow. Like, you know, because I've always come across like really good deals. I think my clients appreciate it and we're always turning each other on to certain sure. things, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. That's the best part about watches. Yeah. So it's the community, you know. The crazy thing is, I've had people that want to trade shoes for a watch, and I'm like, Are you kidding me? Like, seriously? I'm like, Yeah, okay, I'll trade you retail to retail. So I've gotten so many watches that way. Wow. Um, yeah, people. Yeah, because your shoes aren't cheap. Yeah. Right? So, like, we, we never, we, we kind of neglected price. Yeah. So, what do they start at? I mean, like, a made to order is probably 900 to $1,500 standard. Okay. If you go into the, like, the exotic one I showed you downstairs, it's probably like five $6,000. And then, like, if they're not made to order, if they're, what would you call it, as is? Is that what you said? No, made to order, you still order it, like, uh, like in stock. But like do you have ready to wear? We do have some. Yeah. But it's, it's very, we have found that a lot of people don't buy our ready to wear. They buy our sneakers. Right. They don't want to buy our shoes. They're, you know, my, I think because, for 35% more, you can get whatever you want. Yeah. Why would you buy it? Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. When we opened, we had a tons of, tons of stock, men's and women's. Nobody would buy anything. I'm like, I'm right. getting depressed. I'm like, nobody's buying my shoes. But well, then you know, my CFO comes in. He's like, yeah, but look at how many MTOs we're selling. I'm like, okay, that makes me feel better. Well, I think for that price, the construction's the same, right? Construction's like, the same. So why not make it? even more special exactly. and cut your overhead. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, yeah. I mean, that's a financial discussion yeah. that your CFO no, 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 but, saw. But, but that's, so now what we do is we do limited drops. Right. I'll make whatever, a shoe, I make seven pairs, done. Got it. Seven pairs, done. Got and it. that's what, oh, you don't have this? Well, I don't have 40 pairs because if I had 40 pairs of that, I can't have 40 pairs of everything. Right, 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 sure. It's just- It's a storage problem I, it's too. It's a storage problem, but it's also, I want things to stay fresh in here. Yeah. So, going back to the watch. Yeah. Uh, I buy the Tutima and I bought all these watches. I've, I've had all them all. And so 2018, I would say probably 2018, I met an editor and we were talking watches and she's, and I think I was wearing this one. She goes, Oh, 
I know someone over there. So I don't remember what it was. Right, I mean, right. Um, and she said, you should really talk to him. And then at some point we connected again and she says, I need you to talk to someone. This person, she works in watch PR and you should connect. I'm like, okay. And we started talking. She liked the story. She said, I really like what you do. I think your products are amazing. Yeah. Here's some brands I work with. Who do you like? I'm like, well, they're all freaking amazing. <laughs> and she goes, what watches do you have? And one of the watches happens to be, I said, Tutima. She's like, no. She goes, you have Tutima? I said, yeah. She goes, I don't believe you. I'm like, so I sent her a picture. I said, here. And she's like, wow, that's crazy. You need to meet the president. President comes here. And I had done, there's a concept in there. I had already done it after we talked. And she goes, you need to put on paper what you would do as a concept. I'm like, it's a full package. Like it needs to be dual time zone or GMT. For me, the dual time zone, I was always neurotic about what time I could call my wife to talk to the kids. Right. What time they get out of school, what time they wake up. That was always when you were in Europe, when I'm traveling yeah. Asia or Europe yeah, right? yeah, yeah. or the Middle sure. East. Yeah. Always. Or even in New York, like, oh, just oh, that's true. Whatever. Just when can I call? Say hi. Say goodnight. Got to be the good dad. Right. I didn't want to be the jerk. that Oh, I missed him again. So that's always it's a thing for me knowing what time it is back home. So he comes here. We start talking. He goes, I really love what you do. You want to do something? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so show me what you're thinking. I show him, he's like, wow, this is beautiful. No one's really done travel in this way. And I kind of thought of everything, again, that I would want if I'm traveling. The two straps, the duffel bag, the boots. Now, keep in mind, I can make anything I want, but this is the consumer who can't, right? So this package is a watch? It's a watch with it, two straps. With two straps and a duffel bag. A duffel bag, a pair of boots. A pair Which are made to order. Made to order, and a travel case for the watch. And how much is it? Uh, sixteen nine, sixteen thousand nine hundred. Okay. For the kit. That's incredible. Yeah. So I got to design the watch. It's now, a manually wound. It's a manual wind. Yeah. Um, and I can give you all the specs. I want to say it's a sixty-four hour power reserve. Uh, the time has been amazing until I dropped it. <laughs> and the rose gold movement. Rose gold movement. Base yeah. plate. Yeah. And I can give you how many jewels are inside and the whole thing. Yeah. Um, they've never done, it's an in-house movement from part of the Patria collection. It's an in-house movement and they've never done it in stainless. I wanted something more durable. I don't really wear gold. I think it's for what I do here at the shop. It's a little too precious. Sure. Uh, the gold version I believe is like 22,000. Um, yeah, and I got to design it. Now I designed it from existing components because they said, if you want to design it soup to nuts, you're looking at two years. And I'm like, yeah, I can't wait. Let's get this thing going. <laughs> and I'm just super excited. I mean, it's been cool. Raw Report did a feature on it. Uh, Hodinkee Magazine did a feature on it. Esquire, uh, Forbes. I mean, it's it's been really cool. That's amazing. I, I'm like blown away that, but it, again, I go back, you know what, what I said about Anna, she like, she changed my mind, she changed my life. This wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have had that education that Anna put me through and Vogue and everybody there and the support from the CFDA. Sure, yeah. It would never happen. You, like you have to, I don't believe in, there are the prodigies and there are the geniuses that can come up with amazing ideas. But you can't just be like, oh, this is how a collection works and how does it all, and how do you tell the story and what's the branding behind it and what's the marketing behind it and what's the credibility behind it? You know, so many brands right now are on like super steroids. 
Mm-hmm. They go through the roof and then they disappear. And I was like, that's not what I want. Right. Now, right. I'm, and I'm not saying I want my kids to take over my business, but I also am a realist in understanding that luxury takes a long time. Sure. I mean, Tutima has been around since 1928 and you haven't heard of them. A lot of people haven't heard of them. You know, you've heard of them, but you don't really know who they are. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's one of those yeah. things where like, I feel like I heard the name. You've seen I it in all the magazines. I recognize yeah. the font. Yeah. But like, I, I just don't yeah. know the brand. They're not like, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. They, and that's, that, that goes, they're almost a hundred years old. Yeah. And there's a lot of things like that. Yeah, of that course. Have a, and, and I think that's where, for me, as a creative director of my brand, that ha- I have to be a realist, right? Right. I can't look at what this brand is doing and oh my gosh, they're in 150 doors or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or It's not, you, you have your own brand. You gotta look at what you're doing, put your blinders on and say, this is who we are today. And that's kind of all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. George, I think that's a great yeah. place to stop. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, thank you for that education. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, and if anybody wants any info, they can just reach out via email or yeah. uh, the watch is on the site. They just send us the questions. We'd be glad to help anybody. This was awesome, man. Yeah, thank you. I had Great a blast. to finally meet you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, George. This wraps up this episode of the Standard H Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.